People truly are one of the greatest gifts that life can ever give. The type of gift, though, of course, depends on the situation you find yourself in. Sometimes it could be a lesson learned. Sometimes it could be awe and inspiration. And other times that gift could be just pure laughter. But no matter what, when you listen to people tell the stories of their lives, it's impossible not to feel some sort of emotion. No matter who it is, their story has twists and turns, ups and downs, moments of belief, moments of disbelief, and sometimes they even meant it. For those of you who don't know what I do during the day, uh, I serve a local hospital as their psychiatric chaplain. So throughout the day, I tend to visit patients on our, what we call behavioral health units, as well as in our emergency rooms. Periodically, when the opportunity arises, I do get to go to the other parts of the hospital. Lately, for whatever reason, I find I've been spending a lot of time with maternity and special care nursery. I guess tis the season. Um, every once in a while, though, too, I get to go to our med surge floors or go to our ICU. So I get to bump around the hospital relatively frequently. I am definitely quite busy, but it is a good busy. I, I do enjoy it. So as I go around and talk to people, I get to hear their stories. And trust me, I hear all of their stories. I hear the stories of great accomplishment and the stories of terrible failure. I hear the stories that are clearly missing parts because they felt it was too risque to tell the chaplain. And then I hear the stories that even would make a sailor blush and admonish the person telling them because there's way too many details. I hear all of them. <laughs> and all of this is happening, remind you, in moments of crisis. Nobody plans to go to the hospital, at least I don't think so. All this is happening in moments where long-held tensions that have been percolating under the surface shoot up through the fertile soil that is the subconscious and comes into the daylight in the words of the person speaking. And I get to be the one who hears it. And sometimes the individual is also hearing it for the first time too. As I hear these stories, there are certain themes that I hear again and again and again. One of them that I want to highlight today is the theme of hope. I see questions of hope with family members as they sit with their loved ones in the ICU. I see questions of hope as parents hold their newborns. I see questions of hope when I speak to a person whose 15 years of sobriety was interrupted by a death of a loved one. With almost every room I go to, there is hope there or not there, or lurking around the corner, or hidden in plain sight. No matter what, whether hope is there or not, the question of hope is always looming large. So once a week, I try and go to our behavioral health units and offer what we call a spirituality group. There are all different types of groups that are offered on the floor, and they're great ways for patients to come together and to talk about what's going on in their lives, to share stories, to feel heard. Each of these different groups have what's called a protocol. 
and the protocol lists what will happen, what are the goals, and so one day I got to see the protocol for our spirituality groups, and it had two goals. First, teach spiritual practices that patients can take with them when they leave the hospital, and the second was bring hope. So, of course, I saw those two goals and thought, well, that's clear-cut, nice and easy. Nobody's ever had any problem with them, as I back up slowly shaking into a corner in fear. Uh, <laughs> no sweat, right? But what that did was it had me ask the question, a question that I don't know if I ever asked myself. When I say hope, what do I mean? I mean, I use the word all the time. It passes the I know it when I see it question, but have I ever actually needed to define it? I figured the I know it when I see it wasn't a good enough basis for my spirituality groups. So I figured as I talked to people, I would listen to the patients and see if I can glean things from their wisdom. What I found oftentimes wasn't actually hope as I listened. This almost hope was a major part of the work that I did with people. Sometimes it was obvious that this wasn't hope. It was actually the denial stage in somebody's grieving process. Sometimes it may have been a subtle symptom of somebody's health issues. But in either case, statements that sounded like hope weren't as they added to the person's suffering. They were statements that didn't seem to be helping the person with what was going on. I always thought hope was supposed to be something good, but hope should never add to somebody's suffering. And if it did, I definitely wouldn't be supposed to bring it to my spirituality groups. So after a long while of paying attention to the subtleties in my encounters with people and their questions of hope, you would think I came away with this neatly packaged, pithy definition of hope. Well, I hate to say it, but the exact opposite happened. I have no idea how to define hope at this point. In fact, I think the more I think about it and the more I reflect on it, the, the more uncertain of how to define it I become. But while I can't offer a definition of hope, I can say that I have seen two parts to people when they have that true, deep, beautiful hope. The first is some element of inner work, some element of introspection. Who am I? What do I need? What power do I have? Where am I? And then the second element is some part of outer work some element that looks at the world and see what needs to be changed, what could be changed, what possibilities lie outside. Both of these are gearing us, of course, to something that feels right, something that brings joy and peace and tranquility and justice and so many of those other wonderful things. The true hope that I have witnessed again and again has some aspect of inner and outer work to be done. So in my own spiritual life, uh, I tend to dive into history. I love history, and that's where I go for my sources of inspiration. 
in Unitarian Universalist history has so many people who have done this amazing work. Obviously, I'm going to bring up Norbert Chopek. He has been quite the theme so far today. For those of you who are historically astute, when you heard Czechoslovakia in 1923, I think you know where this story is headed. Chopek's ministry saw the rise of the Nazi party one country over. It saw the failure of institutions to stop the slow brook towards hatred. Of course, Chopek was quite the astute person, so when Czechoslovakia was taken over by the Nazis, he was able to remain in the was he or was he not helping resistance category. And yet, for some reason, the Gestapo always hung out nearby, always was in his sermons, always was watching what he did, until one day they were able to arrest him for having a radio that could broadcast BBC news. And so they brought him to the concentration camps from which he would never emerge. It was during that period that the reading from today was written. So in the words of our reading, we can hear Chopek's outer work very clearly. The outer work is blatantly said in the very last lines. Trust that after winter's snowfall, walls will melt and truth will flow. The hope that the truth of who the Nazis were, the truth that everyone is loved by a great spirit, Chopek called God, the truth that Chopek's life's work was to bring good to the world, those truths and so many more were waiting to be let free. His whole life, really, was all the outer works, building the, the Unitarian Church in Prague, bringing crowds to hear his sermons, and maybe or maybe not working covertly with the resistance because he was quite good at hiding his paperwork. All of this was geared toward seeing the possibilities in the world and working to change. Yet we can also see his inner work, his inner work toward hope. Chopek at that time could only sit. He couldn't go out and change the world like he used to. He knew that his situation was not one from which many would ever return to their regular lives. His inner work became one of accepting realities and making sense of them. He wrote, my soul soars with your perception. I escape from prison bars. And he reminds himself that his God was my guide through hate's fear storming, courage in both life and death. Sitting in a Nazi prison cell, in one of the death camps, this poem answers Chapek's question, now what? His inner work helped him find the questions deep in his soul. The inner work helped him find those tough things that he needed to answer. Now I can't talk about history without talking about this congregation. This congregation here, oh my goodness, we can find so many examples of people who have done amazing work. One example who comes to mind is the Reverend Joseph Crocker Snow. If, if that name sounds familiar, it might be because you've read it more than once underneath the stained glass window of Jesus. Reverend Joseph Crocker Snow was the minister of this church 
when it was being built. He is the one who helped organize everyone to give us this beautiful sanctuary, the beautiful Murray Room, and all of these wonderful things that we have. At the laying of the cornerstone, Reverend Snow gave a speech, which, by the way, we still have in his handwriting in our archives, Wonder of Wonders. And in it, he has this wonderful moment where he says that the mission of this church is to help people suffering with alcohol, with gambling, with all of those terrible things that bring vices. He says that this church is willing to partner with any benevolent institution who's willing to do that work. And then we did, and we still are doing. But at that time, they immediately set up lectures. These doors would be moved so that way they could fit hundreds of people in here to hear lectures. Not only that, but we had dinners. We put on plays upstairs. For Pete's sake, we had a basketball court upstairs at one time. We did everything to try and get people to come in here so they could do that inner work. And we did that outer work to try and bring them here. And that outer work of the church, that mission to go forward into the community to try and help people, that's not a new thing. The earliest record that I can find of it being that clear was 1730 when our Unitarian, well, he wasn't quite Unitarian yet, but on the Unitarian side, Deacon Daniel Little was named overseer of the poor for the city of Haverhill. As overseer of the poor, Deacon Little, his job was to make sure that those who were homeless had places to sleep that were safe, that the hungry had food and water. So as the overseer of the poor, he not only helped the city, but as a deacon, he did the work of the church to try and bring the vision of beauty and safety that our people had. And at the same time, as all that wonderful outer work was being done to make our vision real in the world, to make possible what we saw, our church has been doing wonderful inner work too. I have one story that illustrates this, I think, wonderfully. I was speaking one time to an elder from the community, not part of this church. For the purposes here, I'll call him Tim. And I could only estimate Tim's age, and I feel like that would be unfair to Tim. He told me that he wasn't a Christian, but that he would always come here for Bible studies. Now, Tim told me that the minister was absolutely amazing, and making an estimated guess based on his age, I figured it may have preceded Reverend Frank Clarkson. So I asked him if he knew Reverend Steve Schick, Frank's predecessor, and he said, who's that? So I guessed it wasn't him. Then I said, well, maybe it was Reverend Webb from the 70s or Reverend Bowering. He didn't know either of them either. So I thought, could it be Emerson Schwenk? The minister here from the 50s? The minister who is here when the churches merged? I don't know. So I asked him, I said, was it Emerson Schwenk? His eyes lit up and he said, that's him. Who'd have thought? He goes, I haven't heard that name in years. And he started to tear up. His Bible studies, this man said, were things that I could never forget. He made me think and reflect about my beliefs in ways that I had never done before. 
Even though I had no right to belong at that church, he made me feel like I did. Schwenk left this church in 1957. Seventy years later, this guy still cried at his name. I get teary remembering the conversation. It's amazing how many lives this church has touched. At a certain point, though, that inner work that Reverend Emerson Schwenk called on and that outer work that Reverend Snow called on, they have to merge. One of my heroes, Unitarian laywoman Dorothea Dix, I think has a fantastic story. For those of you who don't know Dorothea Dix, she's like a hero of mine. Uh, she was a layperson in the 1800s who did amazing work for those who were in prison and those who were suffering from mental illness. She traveled the United States, she traveled Canada, she traveled Europe, all lobbying governments, trying to help make a more humane treatment for those who were suffering with mental illness. And at the same time, she had one of the most amazing and vibrant and beautiful prayer lives that you could ever see. She actually wrote a very not well-known book called Meditations for Private Hours, where she dives into her own faith and how she models herself after Jesus of Nazareth. Yet when I reflect on her life, the part that I think of that shows how she modeled hope isn't when she lobbied governments and had laws passed, or even when the Pope called her the Protestant Saint Teresa of Avila, nor is it all the wonderful writing she had in those books. But it was actually just when she was traveling through the Midwest. Back in those days, of course, it was all horse and buggy, right? So there she is, sitting in the back of her carriage, when all of a sudden it comes to a stop. Somebody held her carriage at gunpoint, trying to rob them. So if you're Dorothea Dix, what do you decide to do? You decide that you're going to go talk to the fellow with the gun. Now, of course, if you're the guy driving the cab, I don't know about you, I'm terrified. I have this lady in the back that I'm trying to get somewhere safe, and she wants to go talk to the guy with a gun. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too thrilled about that. But what happens next really is truly amazing, right? The man hears her voice and freezes instantaneously. He recognized her. He was incarcerated back in Philadelphia and heard her talking to somebody a cell over. And that overheard conversation stuck with him so much that when he heard her voice, he froze. This was a woman who went into their jail and showed them kindness and care and love and treated them like people. And he was going to rob her. So, of course, with all the emotion that he was feeling, he said, no, 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 I don't want to rob you. Just go on. I'm so sorry. And then, of course, now Dorothea Dix, being the woman she is, says, uh, no, 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 first you're going to give me the gun. <laughs> and, of course, of course, he looks and goes, okay, and hands her over the gun, <laughs> which, is which is remarkable. And then she says, and take my money, too. <laughs> and, of course, he's like, no, I don't want your money. I, I, you did amazing. And she goes, no, you're going to take my money, and it's going to hold you over for a few days, and you're going to go find a job. And after much cajoling, he finally took her money. 
So think about what happened. Dorothy addicted all this inner work to find where she needed to belong, to find what she was good at, to find her strengths. She did all that inner work to find the courage to step into these places that people were scared to go to. And then she did the outer work with people, listening, being with them, hearing their stories. So much so that when she bumps into people she knows, they freeze with gratitude. That one story shows us just how much hope she made possible. So this brings me to the two big questions that I have to leave you with. The first is when you think of your hope, whatever it is, are you doing both the inner and outer work? And then second, what are you doing for that inner work and outer work? What does it look like? If you want to dive into that inner and outer work, this church has wonderful possibilities for you. Go to the meditation group. Join the social justice group. Look at pastoral care. Join the worship committee. Try and try and the, the worship associates. Look at ladies' circle. There are so many places for you to explore that's offered here to either dive deep into yourself and ask what are the questions that I'm carrying or to go into the world and try to make alive what you see. Never mind the simple fact that if you don't see what you want here, make it. Let it happen. It'll be a gift. If you're curious about what's being offered here, this is an invitation to talk to me talk to Tori, talk to Frank. I think I can offer it on both of their parts that they would be happy to chat with you. Ask people at coffee hour. People may not know everything that's going on, but they know what they're doing. Talk to them. If we don't know, we can point you in the right direction, hopefully. So I hope that this place can be a safe place for you to do that experimental hope work. I hope that you feel free to ask the questions that you need to. I hope you feel free and supported in your search for the answers that you find. For hundreds of years, this sacred space has been the playground for our ancestors' hope work. Let me formally invite you into that sacred work, too. Amen. And blessed be.